to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding before, uh, before we turn to God's word, uh, I simply would like to say thank you. You might not know this, but you support me. You do. Um, you guys give tithes and offerings to the church, and the church, Fort Worth Presbyterian Church, has for seven years very generously and very graciously allowed me and a number of other RUF campus ministers and interns to serve him and serve college campuses across the United States. And I simply want to say thank you. Also, there are a number of you who actually individually support me and I want to tell you I am very very thankful I could not do what I've been called to do without the support without the partnership of Fort Worth Presbyterian Church so I'm very very grateful for your generosity if you would like uh, turn in your Bibles to 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 that is on page 9 64 in, I believe, in the Pew Bibles. We're actually going to be looking at a couple of passages this morning. You might want to keep one finger in chapter 1 and also have a finger in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. This is God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If you would turn to chapter 12. Beginning in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, 
that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Folks, there is my opinion, there is your opinion, and then there is the Word of God. And what we've just read together is the very Word of God. Give it ear, and let's ask Him to bless our time together. Father, um, we need You. We need You to... Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, we can can go through the motions this morning. I don't want to go through the motions. I I, I don't need to go through the motions. I need you. We need you. Father, I do not have the ability to change hearts. But you do. And so we ask that you would bless us with your presence. You would allow us to taste and see that you are good. That you would open our minds and our hearts. And as a result, we would leave this building this morning different than we came in. Bless our time. In Christ's name, amen. Well, um, this past semester... At RUF at Tennessee Tech, I did a series, a sermon series, uh, that I called Extreme Makeover, The Dynamics of Biblical Change. It was a title that, that it's not original to me. I actually borrowed it from another campus minister. But it was a series that I thought needed to be taught. The reason being, many of my students think and believe that Jesus came and died for them. He lived for them and he died for them. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take them to heaven. But they have absolutely no idea what to do with the in-between time. And here's the deal. The Bible is very clear that Jesus came to live and die for you and for me. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus is going to return and he's going to take those who look to him in faith, home, to be with him forever. But that's not all the Bible tells us. The Bible also tells us that Jesus has come to change us, to transform us. And that transformation begins the moment you look to Jesus in faith. And what that means for you and for me, if you're a believer, is that change, real life heartfelt, deep, genuine change is not only possible, but it's inevitable. If you are a believer and you look to Christ in faith, God is at work in you, making you more and more like Jesus every day. No ifs, ands, or buts. My guess is that for some of you, that's 
great news because you have found yourself trapped in habitual dark sin. And this this truth that Jesus has come to change you is liberating. The chains fall off and you're hopeful. But for others of you, you're not so sure. Because when you look at yourself in the spiritual mirror of Scripture, sometimes you don't see change. It's not that you don't want change. You do want change. In fact, you go to God very often and you say, Please, Father, change this about me. Change that about me. And yet, nothing seems to happen. Kathy and I just celebrated our 20th anniversary at RYM 10 days ago. And uh, over those 20 years plus, we've had this conversation numerous times. Sometimes it's Kathy coming to me. Sometimes it's me going to Kathy. And the conversation always goes like this. Kathy, I have been asking God that he would make me passionate about his word. Or I've been asking God to make me a man of prayer. Or, Kathy, I've been asking God that he would cultivate in my heart and in my life the fruit of the Spirit, particularly patience and love and kindness, particularly with my children. Or I go to Kathy and I say, I've been asking God to help me to love you. So, why doesn't, why doesn't he seem to answer my prayers? Why doesn't God give me the good things that I know he wants for me and that I want for myself? I mean, I know he wants these things for me because I do struggle to read the word. I do know, <laughs> I do know that he wants me to love and hide in my heart and feed upon his word. I know that he wants me to be a man of prayer. I am exhorted over and over, be thankful and pray. God wants to hear my prayers. I know that he wants me to be kind and gentle and patient with my children. I know that he wants me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And, and yet, very often in my experience, I don't see those things. And I ask him, please God, do these things. And very often, it seems like those prayers go unanswered. What in the world is going on? It's a question that you've got to wrestle with. It's a question that you've got to answer. Well, to help us answer that question, I want us to consider the two passages that, that we read just moments ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians 12. Now, what you need to know as we think about these passages is that if this letter of Paul to the church at Corinth is about anything, it is about suffering and affliction. Look again at chapter 1. Verses 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For it is, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And then in verse 8, Paul goes on to tell the Christians at Corinth about a trip he took, about a missionary journey he took. Verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What what is Paul saying? He's saying that when he went to Asia to plant a church, to evangelize, that Paul thought that he was going to die. And you've got to ask the question, why? I mean, why would God frustrate and uh, and allow something like this to happen to the Apostle Paul? I mean, the Apostle Paul is the man. He is. I mean, he is probably the greatest church planner in all of history. He is probably the greatest evangelist in all of church history. He is probably the greatest pastor in all of church history. By the end of his life, He has written uh, all of these letters that have been collected and have become a part of our New Testament. And yet when he's in Asia, he finds himself staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. And you've got to ask the question, why? Look again at verse 9. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Beloved, that is, at least in part, the answer to the question that we just asked. God allowed this persecution, this terrible suffering, to the point that thought that, he, that, that Paul thought that he was going to die so that he would not rely on himself. Now, with that in mind, flip in your Bibles a few pages over to chapter 12. little background. In chapter 12, Paul gives us uh, somewhat of a spiritual autobiography. He's telling us about an experience that he had 14 years before he wrote this letter. Paul tells us that he had this religious experience, that he had this vision where he was caught up into the third heaven, which is what he says, which is his way of saying that he was taken up into heaven. And he heard things that he could not utter. He saw things that he could not tell us about. He saw the cherubim. He saw the seraphim. He saw the throne of God. Now, why does the Apostle Paul tell us this? Well, it's because he wants us to go, wow. 
That was quite an experience, right? That was quite a religious experience. That was quite a privilege. There's not too many of us who can say with the Apostle Paul, oh yeah, I had that vision too. I was caught up into the heaven, uh, into heaven and, and I saw the cherubim and the seraphim in the throne of God. But Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 7, Paul continues. He says this, he says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. No one is exactly sure what this thorn was. My guess is that since, uh, since the day that the church at Corinth received this letter, people have been scratching their head and wondering, what was Paul talking about? What's this thorn in the flesh? What we do know is this, that Paul believed it was a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. And we know that this thorn wasn't a minor difficulty, but it was a serious, serious thing. Why? Because Paul says that he asked God to take it from him not once, not twice, but three times. When else did someone pray that something would be taken taken from him not once, not twice, but three times? It's Jesus. Where was he? The Garden of Gethsemane. What was about to happen? He was about to be crucified. Paul's point is simply this. This thorn in the flesh... It's a bad, bad thing. Now, what I think is is monumentally astounding about this passage is that in it, Paul implies that it is God himself who gives Paul this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Look again at verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Why did Paul, or why did God allow Paul to have this thorn in the flesh? He says it twice. It's it's to protect him. God is actually loving Paul. By allowing Paul to have this thorn in the flesh. God did this to protect Paul from becoming proud. It was for Paul's own good. It was God in his grace acting on behalf of the Apostle Paul. To protect him from becoming too elated. To protect him from becoming spiritually cocky. To protect him from becoming self-righteous. I don't know what you guys think of Van Halen, but I grew up in Los Angeles in the 70s. And I love Van Halen. I do. Sorry. I'm not promoting Van Halen. I'm not suggesting you go out and buy their albums or emulate their lifestyles. But I'm a headbanger from the 70s. And I can't get it out of my blood. Well, Van Halen is actually still around. 70s, 80s, 90s, the noughts, and whatever we are now, the the teens. 
Over those years, Van Halen has gone through a number of lead singers. Uh, from 1974 to 1985, the lead singer was David Lee Roth. Confession. I saw Van Halen in 1980. David Lee Roth was the front man. It was amazing. It was amazing. But in 1985, David Lee Roth and the band decided to part ways. So the band asked Sammy Hagar, the Red Rocker, to come and join them. And from 1985 to 1996, and then again from 2003 to 2005, Sammy Hagar fronted the band. In 1996, Sammy Hagar got fed up with the band and he left Van Halen. And so they got together and they asked this guy named Gary Sharon, someone you probably never heard of, this guy from a band, a hair band called Extreme, to come front the band. He fronted the band for three years. They never really gelled. And so in 1999, they parted ways as well. And now, after years and years, Van Halen is touring again. And you know who their front man is? David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth, the original singer for Van Halen, is now fronting the band. They've reunited. But what you might not know is that this is not the first time the band has reunited. In 1996, after Sammy Hagar left the band, Alex Van Halen, Edward Van Halen, and Michael Anthony got together and they decided they wanted to put out a best of Van Halen album. But see, I own all the Van Halen albums and I'm not going to buy a best of album that's just got all these songs that I already own, right? So what do bands do? Typically, they write a track or two, a new track or two, and they put it on a best-of album. But see, Van Halen in 1996 doesn't have a lead singer, so what do they do? They call David Lee Roth, and they invite him to sing on these two new tracks. Well, word gets out that the original members of Van Halen have reunited. And the folks at MTV who are about to have the uh, 1996 MTV Music Awards get this great idea. They think, wouldn't it be great if we surprised the audience with a guest presentation given by the original members of Van Halen? So they went to uh, Van Halen and they said, hey, what would you guys think about this? And the guys in the band thought, wow, this would be a great way to promote our new album. So let's do it. So the, the night of the 1996 MTV Music Awards arrives. At some point in the festivities, the lights dim and the curtain goes up. And there is Edward Van Halen, Michael Anthony, Alex Van Halen, and David Lee Roth. And the crowd goes crazy. I mean, it's insane. The roar, the applause, the ovation. And then it happens. As the boys are walking toward the podium, David Lee Roth steps in front of the other three. And he stretches out his arms. And he looks at the crowd and he nods. He closes his eyes. He does. It was unbelievably embarrassing. You know, David Lee Roth could have and probably should have walked up to the podium and said, I am so unbelievably thankful that these three men, my friends, would ask me 
to join them on this stage. Or I am so honored that these three men would ask me to participate, to sing two new songs on this new album. But instead, he's just standing there and he's shaking his head and he's smiling. He's got his eyes closed and he makes the moment about himself. Well, the presentation is over and the boys walk off the stage. And here's the thing. There had been talk about a, re- been talk about a reunion. They had talked about, hey, let's get together and tour and, and make an album. But when those four men walked off the stage, that was the last time anybody saw the four of them on a stage for 10 years. David Lee Roth's pride had crushed the opportunity. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, it's because I think it's an amazingly accurate illustration of our own hearts. Why doesn't God give you the good things that you want, that you know He wants for you? Could it be that He wants to protect you from becoming like David Lee Roth at the 1996 MTV Music Awards? Could it be that He wants to protect you from the pride that, that still lurks deep down in your heart that would explode if you got the good things that you're praying for? Could it be like what God did in the life of the Apostle Paul? That that God was protecting him from becoming too enamored with his own religious experience? Could it be that, that God is trying to protect you from becoming too dependent upon yourself? That you would rely on yourself and not upon Him? You see, the question that I always ask Kathy, or she always asks me when we go to one another and we ask this question is, what do you think would happen if God gave you the good thing that you're asking for? And here's the thing. I think we've concluded. If God gave me the good things that I want, I'd move away from Him. I wouldn't move towards Him. I would move away from him. I would fill up with pride. And I would become less dependent upon God. An old pastor from days gone by put it like this. He said, the old man would have you look at yourself and to draw your safety and happiness from some pleasing view of your own goodness. You know it's true. All of us, by nature, are full of ourselves. And what we want to do, if we're honest, is we want to glory in our own goodness. We want to glory in our church attendance. We want to glory in our Bible reading. We want to glory in our performance. We want to glory in everything and anything but Jesus. And here's the thing. That's not what God wants for you. God doesn't want you to find your final satisfaction in your religious performance. God doesn't want you to find your final satisfaction in the good things that you do. Another pastor, John Newton, you might know him. He uh, was a slave trader 
who became a believer and then became a pastor, wrote a bunch of hymns, um, Amazing Grace being one of those hymns. Well, he, he wrote a letter to this guy called the Earl of Dartmouth. The year was 1772. The Earl was struggling with the same kind of question that we're wrestling with this morning. And this is how John Newton responded. He said this. He said, by these experiences, by your continued struggle with sin and idolatry, by these experiences, the believer is weaned more from self and taught more highly to prize and more absolutely to rely on him who is appointed to us of God our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. The more vile we are in our own eyes, the more precious he will be to us. And a deep, repeated sense of the evil of our hearts is necessary to preclude all boasting and to make us willing to give the whole glory of our salvation where it is due. That, my friends, is what God is doing when he doesn't give you the good things that you want, that you know He wants for you. He is actually protecting you from yourself. He is actually weaning you from self-dependence. But here's the thing, there's more. Look again at first, or 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. This thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. That it should leave me. But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you get it? Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? God wants for you and for me. He wants us to grow in our awareness of Jesus He wants us to grow in our confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. He he wants us to focus not on ourselves, but on Jesus. He wants us to be satisfied, not with our own religious experience or our performances, but with the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants us to prize and rely on nothing other than the person and work of Jesus. And here's the deal. That is counterintuitive. Most of us were raised so that we would stand, we would be able to stand on our own two feet. That when we grew up, we would leave home and be able to stand on our own two feet. I tell my students this all the time. Most of your parents aren't going to be real excited about you graduating from college and then moving home and starting that job at McDonald's again. Why? Well, it's because your parents have raised you so that you would go off to college, get a degree, and then be able to get a job, be able to provide for yourself, and become a productive member of society, right? That's a good thing. That's a very, very good thing. But what Paul is telling us in this passage, in these passages, is that with God, it is the exact opposite 
God's goal for our lives isn't that we would stand on our own two feet. The fact is that that is our deepest problem. I mean, think back to Genesis chapter 3. It's the story of the fall. Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes to Adam and Eve, and he tempts them. How does he tempt them? This is my words, not his. You want to make the call? Do you want to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and bad? How would you like to be God yourself? All you got to do is eat that fruit. And when Adam and Eve took that fruit and they ate of it, what they were basically saying to God is, I declare my independence. I want to stand on my own two feet. I want to make the call. I want to decide what's right and what's wrong. I want to make the call. But Paul says, no. God's goal for you and for me is not that we would stand on our own two feet, but rather that we would crawl up into the lap of our loving Heavenly Father and allow Him to wrap His arms around us. That we would not rely upon ourselves, but that we would rely upon God who raises the dead. That, my friends is the answer to the question that we're thinking about this morning. And here's the deal. Sadly, because of our hearts, more often than not, the pathway to that growing, that ever-increasing awareness of Jesus, that ever-increasing satisfaction with Jesus, that ever-increasing confidence in Jesus is through an ever-increasing awareness of our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, and our own inability. I mean, think about it. When things are going well for you, spiritually speaking, what happens? can't tell you what happens with you. I can tell you what happens with me. I begin to feel pretty good. When I read my Bible consistently for a while, I feel pretty good. When I pray consistently for a while... I begin to feel pretty good about myself. But God doesn't want to fill you up with yourself. Rather, God wants to empty you of yourself so He can fill you up with Jesus. That old pastor, he said this as well. When the Spirit would glorify Jesus, He humbles you. When He would glorify His fullness, He makes you feel your emptiness. When he would bring you to rely on his strength, he convinces you of your weaknesses. When he would magnify the comforts of Jesus, he makes you sensible of your misery. When he would fix your heart on his heaven, he makes you feel your deserved hell. When he would exalt his righteousness, you find you are a poor, miserable sinner. That's the answer. Now I want to say two things in conclusion. First is this, Paul is not suggesting that we take a casual, cavalier, or accepting approach to our sin and our struggles with it. If you read the words of the Apostle Paul throughout the letters that he wrote, over and over and over, he tells us that the goal 
of the Christian life is our own holiness, our own Christ-likeness. That's what God is doing, and that's what we should lean into ourselves. The Apostle Paul is not saying, since God does not give you the good things that you want, you can crawl into bed with the idols of your heart. You and I, we still need to fight the good fight. We need to run the race. We need to pray without ceasing. There's a second thing that you need to know, and that's this. God is not into self-loathing and self-hatred. God does not hate you. He does not loathe you. And you should not hate or loathe yourself. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning as I need to really hate myself. God doesn't hate you. He doesn't want you to become an Eeyore Christian or a sky-is-falling kind of Christian. What He wants for you is not that you think less of yourself, but that you think of yourself less. He he just wants you to not think about you. It's not that he wants you to hate you. He just wants you to not think about you. That's what God wants. Why? Why? So that we would think more and more of Jesus. So that we would have an ever-increasing awareness of Jesus. So that we would grow in our confidence in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for us. So that we would grow in our confidence, in our satisfaction with Jesus. Why doesn't God give you the good things that you want and you know he wants for you? It's because God's got a different agenda than you. He, he just does. It's funny. I think it's, 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 it's laughable, really. We see things in our lives and we come up with a list and we sort of expect that God's going to adopt our agenda. But the fact of the matter is God's agenda is completely different than ours very often. And as a consequence, He doesn't give us the very good things that we want and we expect. Why? Because he's weaning us from ourselves. He is protecting us from ourselves. How? By revealing to us our brokenness, our sinfulness, and our inability. So that we will believe that Jesus really is all we need. So that we will believe that Jesus really is enough. Folks, that might sound really scary to you. I'll admit it sometimes sounds really scary to me, but it doesn't have to be. Not if you remember the promise that God made to the Apostle Paul and also makes to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. These are the word of God. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And here's the deal. As you grow more and more confident in the grace, in the power, in the faithfulness of Jesus, you will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Beloved, if there was one thing I could leave with you, it would be this. Jesus is enough. That's what Paul's saying. 
If you'd like, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, these words are are hard to believe. Nothing in this world works like you. We believe in our hearts that we have to do something or else you'll walk away. But what you've told us today, what you've reminded us this morning, is that that's not the truth. Your grace is sufficient. That your power is made perfect in our weaknesses. That you want us to rely not upon ourselves, but upon you. Lord, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away